Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1999 Alexander Payne film Election. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Sam. Um, this was uh, obviously a timely movie to watch in light of everything that we've uh, we've been doing this week, um, which is obviously why you uh, why you chose it. Um, I haven't seen this movie in a long time in its entirety. It's the kind of movie that's a uh, for times has often been on cable when you'll turn it on and I'll catch a piece here or there, but there were big chunks of this movie that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I didn't remember, I didn't remember as part sort of part of the narrative. I think about um, the, the actual election stuff a lot in the movie, but some of the other periphery things were really interesting that, um, that I, I didn't remember. Uh, so let's start off. What is your history with this film? I would have seen it. I, I definitely didn't see it when it came out. Um, I would have seen it sometime on video, but I really don't remember um, what what even brought it to my attention. So I've got a very vague memory. Uh, I know it's been at least 15, 20 years. Would Alexander Payne have been on your radar screen in 1999? Because this was his well, second movie, I think. Second movie. I've still never seen Citizen Ruth. Uh, that was his first movie in, in 96. Um, it, it would have been the first Alexander Payne film I noticed, but it would have been because I it got good reviews, uh, not because it was Payne. So, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and we this is our second Alexander Payne film uh, yeah. because we watched Downsizing from, uh, from 2017. Uh, are there elements of this movie where you see, where you see sort of consistency across Alexander Payne films? Like, like what are things that would, that would, um, be consistent in a body of work, or is this very different from what you see in his other? Well, I, I, I was struck by how different it is in a lot of respects. Um, you know, Payne was uh, raised in Omaha, Nebraska, and he loves Omaha, which is where this film is set and filmed. Uh, and you, you don't get a lot of that in downsizing, although although you do get kind of you know I think the Matt Damon character is kind of a small town guy, uh, and they are in kind of a nondescript midwestern town at the beginning of of the film. So I I do think in a way Matt the Matt Damon character is a fairly typical kind of Alexander Payne character, although he's not as hapless as Matthew Broderick. I think the other thing, of course, that you look for with with Payne is um, some sort of uh, critical or satirical edge in some some way or another. But but he's a very in a very in a way he's a very domestic filmmaker. He's really concerned with with ordinary life. Um, and an election kind of has that in spades, right? You can't get any more typical American than, than a high school. So that I think that domestic orientation of of pain kind of comes through in all of his films. And what's interesting about that though, you know, to to sort of speak that the domestic part of this too is that as much as this is a high school film, there's a lot of it that doesn't take place in class, let alone in the high school itself. That's one of the things that I had forgotten is how much is happening outside outside of the school in these people in these people's lives. That's really uh, drives a lot of this movie, which which made it a very difficult movie to market um, because it really isn't a high school comedy. Um, you know, so it's interesting that you know this is uh, Matthew Broderick, who is really his iconic role is kind of Ferris Bueller. Um, in the John Hughes film, and this film signals very early on that this is not a John Hughes uh, high school comedy, and so it made it kind of hard to figure out how to how to market it. Um, it's not the film that necessarily high school students are going to go to; it's rated R, so that excludes a lot of uh, a lot of folks under seventeen. Absolutely. So um, before we get into this film, you're a fan of the English language, right, Barrett? I, I can safely say that. Yeah. 
that's true. Yep. Okay, um, so I'm going to ask you a question, um, and I've been I've been asking other people this question, uh, including uh, one of our philosophers yesterday. What is the difference between ethics and morality? Well, I've been thinking about that as well as I uh, as I was mowing the lawn yesterday, uh, and I did not resort to a dictionary, but I was thinking about it, and I and, and what I think is helpful to me is to uh, one of the critics one of the critics I heard, I listened to talking about the film says that. Um, Matthew Broderick's character violates both morals and ethics. Um, he violates morals by cheating on his wife, and he violates ethics by undermining the election. So I think, as I think about that, I think morality are, um, those are socially uh, determined rules by which you live, and there are rules that distinguish between what is right and wrong. Um, ethics, I think, are rules of conduct that then get applied to particular areas. So there's nothing necessarily immoral about throwing out the votes in an election, but it certainly is unethical. So I, that's that's the way I would think about it. And I thought I thought it was really interesting um, that that question gets asked um, at the beginning of the movie when he's in class, um, and and actually there's. Um, the only person who really starts to give an answer to the question is Tracy, who gets cut off. So we never actually get to hear her full answer to that question. Right. Yeah. And, it, 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 and it's one of the ways in which the movie has a number of kind of delicious uh, ironies, right? Because I think it's Jim McAllister that says win or lose ethical conduct is the most important thing. So I'd also say uh, one more thing about, about morals and morality. I think that morality usually has some kind of philosophical or religious underpinning. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of mandated by uh, usually some kind of worldview. Um, so one of the big things about this movie, I think if, if people have, haven't seen it for 20 years or maybe have never seen it, um, there is probably an, an image that comes to mind if, they, if they're aware of this movie. Um, and that is that this movie creates a, a, a cultural icon that just gets used in conversation. I think there are people who haven't seen the movie Election who understand Tracy Flick, or at least understand an image of Tracy Flick. Yeah, the, so, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, sorry, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, I say, yeah, right, the, 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 the overachiever, uh, the one that, uh, that wants it so badly uh, that, you, uh, that you can't stand it, but also an, an icon of the overachieving woman who kind of, um, she can't win no matter what she does, right? It's like, right. If she tries too hard, you're trying too hard. If she try, doesn't try hard enough, you're not trying hard enough. So she's sort of, yeah, either, either way, she can't win. Yeah, and and um, I mean, I think this, it made watching this movie so interesting because uh, the Tracy Flick character is, uh, and, and I will say that the character and then also sort of what the character has become outside of the movie. Because um, I think this movie is actually far more interesting than the maybe reductive version of Tracy Flick that gets used, right? As like the, the try hard, um, uh, young woman. Um, but that character seems, uh, contested, uh, in, in ways it was interesting reading. I, I read, and I'm, I, I'm can tell already. I think you read some of the similar things I did. Um, there were some 2019 articles sort of reflecting on, the character of Tracy Flick. Uh, one of them uh, from April 2019 in The Guardian, uh, Charles Bromesco, and then A.O. Scott in August of 2019 kind of wrote a defense of Tracy Flick. And, and, he, and he actually um, references The Guardian article in there. Did, you, did, did those I, two I, articles come across here? No, they didn't. didn't okay. Didn't. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, uh, the the A.O. Scott piece, I would actually 
I would highly recommend that to uh, to anyone. It's called well, "What America Gets Wrong About Tracy Flick," um, and it was it was really fascinating uh, because I watched the movie before I read that. And I actually felt good because I really like A.O. Scott and I felt like I read his take and was like, that's exactly what I thought as I read this or as I watched this movie, um, which is so. So I guess um, one of the questions is to, to what what role does t- Tracy Flick, fit, Flick play in this movie? I mean, because um, the the what's interesting is reading contemporary reviews of the movie. She is framed in certain ways as the villain of the movie. Um, and and part of the the icon of Tracy Flick is a a pretty strong negative in culture. You know, to be considered a Tracy Flick is um, if you're if we're not investigating that closely, that's used as a kind of insult to to a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 uh, in the Charles Bromesco piece, he leans heavily, and you can see his politics in here a little bit. He leans heavily on the fact that Tracy at the end of the movie is. Um, interning with a Republican senator, and he sort of is is putting a lot of other weight on that. Where A.L. Scott is sort of saying, like, uh, it's it's kind of strange to watch this movie in 2019 and think about how um, you need to remind yourself that Tracy Flick is a child in this movie, and and there are some pretty horrific things that happen to her, uh, both immoral and unethical things that are that are happening to her by. Um, by powerful adults around her, so to frame her as a as a villain character, which um, even uh, reading the the Roger Ebert uh, review from 1999, he says some things that I'm sure if Roger were around today, you would show that to him, and he would say, "Yeah, I don't feel great about what I wrote there." Yeah. Um, I, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about the Tracy Foote character is that she is she is complicated. And I think that uh, we're, we're well aware that the view that we get of her often is through Jim McAllister's eyes. And he obviously, um, he obviously represents someone who has uh, a difficult time uh, accepting or forgiving Tracy, both because of what happened with Dave Novotny and because um, you and I are both teachers and we know that it's sometimes teachers develop an animus against a certain student or a certain type of student, and then have a really hard time trying to overcome trying to overcome that. Um, I think the other thing about Tracy, there's a very there's a very um, small little scene that I think is very telling, and that is when she's in her bedroom crying after she thinks she's lost the election, and her mother comes in and says, um, "We'll fix this thing. We'll figure out what what happened," and the implication is what didn't you do right? There, there must be a reason why you didn't win this election. So I think there's a very, and you get a little bit more of the mother earlier in the film. And I think there's a sense that Tracy's been pushed very hard uh, to be an achiever. And she's also been told that if you work hard, you will get ahead and, and you will deserve the success that you have. So she, you know, she believes in a meritocracy. Uh, and those are kind of fundamental American values. Um, and so I think that's why it's hard to, to cast her simply as a villain, because in many ways she is the embodiment of a certain kind of American ethic, if you will, uh, working it, working itself out. Well, and, and there's definitely, and we see this in, um, in the way that Tracy Flick character gets used in American politics too. There's definitely a, a gendered component to this that, you know, that, that, uh, in, in the, um, uh, the Roger Ebert piece, he compares, 
Uh, he compares, so this is in 1999. He compares her to Elizabeth Dole. She gets, uh, there's lots of Hillary Clinton, uh, Tracy Flick comparisons where, where the, that sort of ambitious try hard is, um, or let's just use the word ambitious, right? That, that, that it's a quality that in a, a, a man in broad American culture gets viewed, one, ambition gets viewed one way. And in a woman, it gets, gets viewed another like, yeah. um, you know, so, so, so I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. And I think, um, another piece to sort of thinking about the icon of Tracy Flick, and I don't know if this is a, a piece of culture that, that you are, you've spent much time with, but watching this movie is so different in a post parks and recreation world. Have you ever watched mm. the show parks and recreation? Oh yeah. I love parks and rec. I mean, like, like, it's so interesting. Like this could be the Leslie Nope origin story. It's like yeah. it, it, I mean, it, you would you would believe. I, I I would love to hear Amy Poehler talk about kind of how she viewed the film election as she was creating the character of of Leslie Nope because they're not identical, but there's lots of ways in which she's embodying a, a an Obama era version of of a Tracy Flick type character. It's really interesting to go down that rabbit trail just a, just a little ways, um, Sam. It's really interesting if you watch Parks and Rec, how they change Leslie Nope's character from the first to the second season, where in the first season she's seen very satirically and she's, and she's seen much more, I might say, in a Tracy Flick direction. And then second season they start taking her as a serious, competent person and she becomes much more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, Another thing that I think is is really interesting in terms of thinking about, um, I think this is an interesting movie. We talked last week about Tootsie, like watching it 40 years later, watching this 20 years later and thinking about the um, what happens between Tracy and Dave Novotny um, just yeah. plays so it plays so differently. Again, when I, I there's a couple reviews from 1999. I mean, that that frame her as the the instigator of that, which is fascinating because when you watch the movie, Payne goes to great lengths to show like, and A.L. Scott talks about this, like it is a textbook example of how, um, how a powerful adult who, who is a, a predator, like can um, single out a student. And if you, even if you listen to the things he's saying to her about how you're different and you're, people don't understand you, but I, and, and I'm like, it is a troubling scene to watch. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is in 1999, it, and I, and I'm sure this is, if you think about 1999, this is like in the wake of like, um, the way people in 1999 thought about Monica Lewinsky, like mm -hmm. it feels like that. And it's just like, this is a, a high school junior and, and, you know, and one of her teachers and, and like that, it, it's not that it hasn't aged well. It's just we've, I think our, we view it with such different eyes. And I think Payne actually did a great job of, um, I think taking that, the serious, taking the seriousness of that very seriously so that you watch it now and say, this is really, this is actually really troubling and not really troubling that the movie takes this lightly. It's troubling that we maybe didn't take this seriously in 1999 in the same kind of way. But I think he is. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Monica Lewinsky because when we when we talk about the ending of the film, that's one of the reasons why she goes to Washington because they do model her character to that degree on on, on Monica Lewinsky. Um, but you know what happens between her and Dave and Dave Novotny? Um, I think that I, I, it's really interesting to me the way that comes up in one of the best scenes in the film, which is the the one on one that she and um, and uh, Jim McAllister have, where he's. He thinks he's in the, he's in the driver's seat interrogating her, 
and she turns the turns the tables on him and talks about what happens to certain certain naive people, certain naive students because of a certain you know predatory. I don't know, no matter what she calls the teacher, and 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 she completely turns the tables on him. But there's also this sense that she's aware that she has been taken advantage of, um, and that's not without its consequences. One of the other things that I'd forgotten about this movie that I, I think just makes the screenplay fantastic, and I've not read the Tom Parada novel, so I don't know if this is coming from the novel or if this is an Alexander Payne invention, um, but the way the that he switches narrators throughout yeah. the movie. So you're getting, um, I, th I think it starts with Mr. McAllister. I think he's the initial yeah, narrator. Talking about how he loves teaching. Yeah, and and then and it, and it and then you move and it's like oh so we're gonna get McAllister and Tracy and then all of a sudden then you get Paul and then you get you know I think and Tammy's a narrator too right is she yeah um, so like I actually thought that was brilliant the way it was rolled out because I wasn't expecting it and every time we got a new narrator I was like oh interesting we're getting another person's um, we're getting another person's perspective on this and I I really liked that I thought that was really effective. And that is the structure of the novel as well. So it's a kind of kind of a Faulknerian construction. Um, so uh, one of the things that I loved was how well drawn I thought lots of the characters were. I mean, so we have we have the three people contesting for the um, for the election. We have Mr. McAllister, and I think they're really well drawn. And then I actually think there's lots of characters where you get just a little sample of them. You get a little sample of Tracy's mother. You get a little sample of who I assume is the current president, the guy, the, the student who's like doing the election counts with Mr. McAllister. He's, I, I assume he's, that's the role that Tracy's trying to get into. He's, he seems to have some, like that guy's barely in the movie and I think he's fantastic. And I feel like, and maybe it's because I've spent a lot of my time in schools. I feel like, oh, I know that kid. I know exactly who that guy is. And I know how he views Mr. McAllister and how his view of Mr. McAllister is, is changed throughout the movie. Um, I I, th I thought that the the world of this school is really well drawn. Well, I know both he and the other kid that that are counting with him. They're they're both they were real high school kids. Um, as you may know, Payne cast a number of the actual high school kids, and uh, you know he did screen tests with them, and those two guys both got through. And so, uh, to me, that adds to the authenticity of the film. The fact that there are you know kids who actually went to that high school were extras, both speaking and, and non speaking. Uh, and yeah, so they, I think they really nailed it in that sense. Um, so I want to just run through some of the main characters and get your thoughts on, on, on them. So let's start with, uh, with, we talked about Tracy. Let's start with Mr. McAllister. Um, well, you know, one of the things that stands out to me about, about Mr. McAllister, and I've already mentioned irony early on, but, um, the irony of somebody who, who doesn't really, um, who isn't, first of all, being honest with himself. So, for example, when when he says, um, "I admired Tracy. I didn't blame her for what happened to Dave," um, that's that's completely false. Uh, and so, I think one of the things that's interesting about this character is that he himself he is not honest with himself, and he's not honest with himself up through the very end of the film. You know, when he's living in New York, and he says, "You know, it wasn't as spacious as what I used to, but it, but it was good." And uh, and I'm doing what I love again. I'm teaching, uh, and and and. He says at the end when he sees Tracy going to the limo, he's not bothered by that. But then, of course, he throws the drink against the limo. So to me, one of the really interesting things about McAllister is the way in which he is so self-deluded um, and really out of touch with his own uh, with his own flaws. Uh, 
So um, I, I love the scene where he's uh, talking to Paul. He's trying to talk Paul into running um, because it, what's interesting about it is we, the movie tells us why he's doing that. Like, like with the, you know, the, these little things about Tracy get him to wanting to do this. But at the same time, like, I'm kind of convinced by his argument a little, even though part of his argument is like when he's talking about the fruit and he's just drawing the same circle over and over again, like the apples that are a circle and then he draws an orange and it's also just a circle on the board. But like, like I, there's this, I think, and it's, it's partially because Chris Klein is not a great actor, but he is perfect in this movie. Uh, it is, it is a, it is a very real portrayal of, of a particular kind of person um, in high school. And they, they did such a good job of making Paul such a pretty much likable guy that they didn't make him as this, like, he's not an evil foil to Tracy. He's like, like, like I really like Paul. No, he's, yeah, he's really the only kind of disingenuous person in in the film. He's got no, he's got no hidden motives. Um, He won't vote for himself. He seems to think that's a, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing to do. Um, you know, what you see with Paul is kind of, is kind of what you get. Um, but back to drawing the circles, one more thing about McAllister, there, there's actually, mo- there's motifs of him going in circles in, in the film. So, you know, the film opens with him running around the track and then he draws all those circles and the various ties that he wears, they usually have some kind of circular pattern on them. So the whole notion is this guy is just, he's just living, he's running in circles, basically. And then there's the, the, the another motif that I think is interesting is the uh, the the runner of Coke and Pepsi um, in the in the the um, in throughout the movie because I think it starts with Tracy talking about how uh, Coke is the has the like biggest share but they spend the most money and then so and so Pepsi sort of stands as this kind of alternative and that's what we always see Mr. McAllister drinking through so at the, it's at the end you know it's yep. no mistake that he throws a pepsi at the car <laughs> um you know and that sort of reminds it It also reminds you of those those circles that all look the same because there's a degree to which it's all just cola and you know but but we make this big deal about choosing you know and, and brand identity but it's like maybe they're just circles at you know maybe they're both just the same circle um uh, what is your thoughts on Paul Metzler? We talked a, a little bit about um, a, a little bit about about him. Um, one of the things that I loved about the that performance and that portrayal is he is he comes off as like a kind of a a, a lovable dumb jock um, who has a kind of charisma. Like people are drawn to him, but when he gives when he gets up to give his speech, I almost fell off the couch laughing because it because again that is exactly right it's the person who has charisma in lots of these places but mm-hmm. he is not somebody who's also going to give up and give this rousing speech like i was expecting him to do that and then when i saw him take out this piece of paper and it's and just it's like he didn't want to look at the crowd and just very slowly read and kind of broken uh broken sentences read and i thought that is such a it was a brilliant piece of writing and a brilliant performance it was. It was. It was. It, it, and I think one of the things that's key is, uh, and that Payne does well, is it's 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 brilliant casting. You know, when they first started talking about making this movie, people talked about you know maybe maybe Tom Cruise, maybe I forget who the other option was, rather than Matthew Broderick. And uh, and so I think I think Paul is perfectly cast. The, the other thing I like about Paul's character, and this is part of his kind of his disingenuousness, is. Um, 
uh, when he's trying to make up the decision of his mind about whether or not to run, and he's standing uh, looking out over the water, and he says to me, what does God want from me? And it, it's both ridiculous, of course, but at the same time, that, that that's exactly the way especially when you're a teenager, exactly the way you think about your life. You know, these are momentous things. And he says that destiny uh, tapped himself on, tapped him on the shoulder when Mr. McAllister taps on the shoulder. And there is this line of various folks talking about destiny, right? Tammy says that being with Lisa is her destiny. Uh, and the principal says that a divine hand uh, has disqualified Tammy from running, running for the presidency. So there's also this notion that people take their own impulses, whether they're good impulses or bad impulses, and somehow want to read uh, a, a kind of external uh, destiny uh, driving that. Uh, there's also language around miracle. Uh, when, when Jim thinks that um, uh, Linda is returning his love, he says, it's, it's a miracle, I felt free and alive. So I think that's another perspective you get on these characters that they often want to think that their actions are actually determined by larger cosmic forces. Because even Tracy talked, I think in the, in her first voiceover, I think she talks about you know that Mr. McAllister learns what happens when you try to mess with destiny or something like that. That 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 becomes a, a big piece of the story. Another character that the more I think about it, I thought was really interesting is Tammy Metzler. Yeah. Um, especially thinking about this as a um, as a satire, not just of not just of high school elections, but thinking of politics and elections broadly, because obviously that's what it's a satire of. Um, her as the person who's um, maybe less so the the person who I don't think she really cares about even tearing down the system, but it's about how can I use politics as a way to get something else that I want, whether it's revenge, whether it's out of this school and sent to this other school. I mean, it, she's, as I thought about her, I thought, oh, this is the perfect example of somebody who's running for president to, in the political world, be to raise your profile so that you can get these other opportunities. For her, it's running for this election so that she can get this other opportunity, you know, especially when she realize when she's watching the soccer game and realizes, oh, that's the school that I want to be at. And if I get kicked out of here, my punishment is going to be that I'm going to get sent to uh, sent to this place that I want to go. So I like her as a kind of opportunist who's not even thinking about winning the election. Well, you know, Proto was, um, when he wrote the novel in, in 93, he was actually inspired by the 92 election. So from a political point of view, Tammy is, is Ross Perot, um, the, that, that third party candidate coming in to disrupt the system. Although, as you suggested, she's, she's not really interested in, in being part of the system. She's interested in tearing the system down. So she's not just draining the swamp. She's just, she's eliminating the swamp. Um, and of course, and leaving the swamp. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I, I just love, I, I love the, the response of the crowd to her, right? Because she, she comes up to the microphone. I mean, she's actually, um, she's actually one of the more truthful people in, in, in the film. Although, of course, you know, of course she does, uh, she does manipulate. But, you know, she says what everybody in high school wants to, wants, thinks and wants to say. These assemblies are a waste of our time. This is a, this is a charade. And so, and that is often, obviously, a criticism of our political system. I, I, I did see interviews recently in, as part of PBS's coverage of our current election, interviews with people who were not voting. You know, at, at a time when we have historical turnout, there are people not voting who basically said, I reject, I reject it. I think it's a waste of time. I don't think any, any of these candidates is going to make a difference. And so I think she kind of stands up for that attitude towards politics. Um, so that... 
if we think about this movie as a whole, what does this what does this movie tell us about politics? What does this movie tell us about power? I think I think it tells us at one at certainly at one level that you cannot separate um, a political system. You can't separate ethics. You can't separate morals from other forces that drive human behavior. So in that respect, um, I'm going to go back to Doctor Strangelove um, because um, both um, both David Novotny and Jim McAllister are ultimately driven by their ids. Uh, and that's and that's one that's one of the lessons of Doctor Strangelove, right? That that human beings, especially men, are driven by some fairly base impulses. Um, and and Tammy is is also driven by you know maybe it is unfair, but she's certainly driven by her sexual identity and 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 the love that she has for Lisa. So I think the the film and I said at the beginning that Payne's a domestic filmmaker, but I think maybe another way to think about it is he's a filmmaker who's very interested in in the personal rather than the systemic and the philosophical. So you can think you're talking about philosophical ideas or big political or big social ideas, but ultimately you're talking about very personal ideas. And to get back to the question you started with, Sam, if you think about downsizing, that's what downsizing does, right? Downsizing takes this big global idea, what are we gonna do about global warming? And it shrinks it down literally to the level of, of human inter interactions. And so I think that's what, that's what pain is. It's, it's one of the things he's saying with the film. Okay, as I'm going through my list here, one other, one other. Um, this is a, a a personal a personal observation there that um, the or a personal connection to this movie that the the woman who plays Tracy's mother mm -hmm. is an actress named Colleen Camp, um, mm -hmm. and I actually have a roundabout like if we're if we're playing Six Degrees of Separation, I can get to Colleen Camp really quickly because my aunt. Is a screenwriter. She lives in, in LA as a screenwriter, and Colleen Camp is her agent. Really? Well, yeah, yeah. So she, I mean, Colleen Camp's been in a ton of movies. Um, the the role that I think most people recognize her for is if in the the 1980s movie Clue. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that movie, she plays the uh, Yvette, the the like um, the maid in the movie. That's Colleen Camp. But that's my that's my aunt's uh, my aunt's like film agent is, is Colleen camp. So she's an agent and she's still, um, and she does a lot of acting as well. So I'm always excited when I see Colleen camp in a movie. Um, what is, I want to jump to the ending here because I, I, another thing that I forgot was that this movie has this time jump at the end. And we get this sort of coda on everybody. We get one more shot at them sort of, uh, talking, reflecting on this experience with a year's worth of distance and then a little bit more, right? A little bit more with both McAllister and Tracy. Um, I mean, that's probably a couple years out. I think Tracy's still in college, I would assume, as an intern. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so uh, what are your thoughts on the, the, the different... Um, Maybe the different lessons people talk about, or or different reflections people have. I really liked. I really liked that the fact that we got to see all of those pieces as well. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll say is that that's not that's not the original ending of the novel. Um, the original ending of the novel, which they actually shot, uh, has McAllister staying in Omaha uh, and becoming a car salesman, uh, and then Tracy comes to buy a car from him, and they actually end up having a kind of a, a reconciliation. He signs her yearbook, and she says something. Like, you know, under different circumstances, I like to think that we we could have been friends. So anyway, so uh, and I don't and I don't think it had any of the other codas. So um, 
it, it, I think the, the thing that I liked about the, about the ending was um, having followed those several different strands, in a sense, I think you kind of needed, I think you needed that. You know, so you, I need, you need to find out what happens to Paul. You need to find out what happens to Tammy. But I think more importantly, you need to see that um, what happens with McAllister, as I said earlier, is that he's still trapped, even though he thinks he's gotten out of, um, uh, you know, he thinks he's kind of transcended his circumstances. He really hasn't. And so that ending is very consistent, I think, with the tone of the film and really suggests in a way that he's the anti-hero of the film, uh, that the film is not so much about Tracy Flick, it is, but it's more about his response to Tracy Flick. And it shows you that he actually hasn't grown at all as a human being from the beginning to the end. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I also I also really um, thought it was interesting, you know, one of the things that um, they talk about, I think Tammy talks about with the election is that, uh, you know, people just run for this stuff so they can put it on their resume so they can get into their dream college or things like this. And I love that we get this one little snippet of Tracy in college and we realize she got to go to her dream college because she goes to Georgetown, which seems like such a, you know, as a Midwesterner, like thinking about what I thought about, like, oh, if you go away to school to the East Coast and you go to a school like Georgetown and that's where you're going to go because you want to rise up. And we see her picture. We see the, the one picture we get of Georgetown is that Georgetown is in some ways no different than high school, right? That she's she still feels like she's on the outside and it still feels I mean, we, we replace the um, the cool kids table at the at the um, cafeteria with the people sort of sitting in the dorm hallways doing this and she's annoyed by them. And, um, and I just, so I just also think that's, that's really interesting. Like, like to see that, that she moves from one place like that to the next. And then we get this, this picture of her as somebody who is um, still pushing for those opportunities. And I thought about, um, you know, it, it, in the very end where she's working for the Senator and I thought about the, um, <clears throat> the uh, Tr Charles Bromesco piece I mean, he, like I said, he makes a lot of hay out of, um, again, about of, out of her working for a Republican senator and how, and, and he wants to turn this into this commentary on these other things. And he makes it this big distinction between uh, Tracy, uh, uh, sort of a Tracy Flick and a Leslie Nope, in part because of sort of ideologically where he places them. But I think about like the fact that it's a Republican senator, A, that could mean nothing. Um, or, or I think like, you know, so I looked at in 1999, you know, of the two Senate seats in Nebraska, one of them was a Senator and or what, excuse me, one of them was a Republican. And for, for the most part, Republican or Nebraska has had Republican senators lately. So it's like, that would be, there's lots of people who are, you know, if you're trying to sort of climb the ladder, you know, you have to work the angles you have. So you would go to your state Senator and say, can I work for you? That doesn't necessarily mean ideologically, we have to then put all of this, um, I feel like Bromesco was putting a lot of the last 20 years sort of neocon and all these other things onto Tracy. And I'm like, maybe, or maybe there's a sort of fluidity here too. Cause I actually think you can, um, you can, you can imagine her life going in lots and lots of other directions. Cause one of the comments that, that he makes is that, and this is very true is that, that even Tracy in the election, nobody seems to have a particular uh, <laughs> ideology or platform. There's not much of it. You just know that Tracy really wants this. Right, right. Um, and and you and has worked hard for it. And you know that um, you know that Paul has been convinced to run for this and probably has some of the intangibles to win it because of social connections. It's like, but but it this isn't a movie about 
political ideologies at war, you know? So, so I don't know that I put much significance in that Republican piece there, although Bramesco does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this made me think, are there other sort of uh, great election films? If, if somebody's watched this and they're thinking about, okay, we just went, we're, we're still in the middle of sort of counting ballots for this election. Like, uh, and there's like, oh, I actually would love to watch another great election film. Are there movies well, yeah, that jump out at you? There was a recent list, and that's what kind of got me thinking about election. There was a recent list in the New York Times, and I'm not sure I would say they were great election films, but there was, um, you know, a couple more satires, Dave, uh, the American president. Um, but the one I think of, it's kind of a classic one from early 70s, is Robert Redford in The Candidate. I um, love that movie. Yeah, and then, then if you want a different take on an election film, you could do the original. Don't do the remake. You could do the original, The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, 19, 1962. And then uh, if you want to go even earlier, All the King's Men, uh, based on the Robert Penn Warren novel, that, that's a pretty that's a pretty good election film. So, yeah. uh, What else do you want to talk about with this movie? Speaking of that, uh, Sam, this was Barack Obama. This is Barack Obama's favorite uh, political film. Uh, he's told well, Alex... Or, or at least that's what he says to Alexander Payne. And also, in the 2008, in the, uh, in the primaries against Hillary, he used the rebel yell. Uh, okay. You know, for which is from a film called Navajo Joe. Uh, but the scene where Tracy looks across the room and sees that Paul is collecting signatures, and you get that rebel yell. He used that when he was running against Hillary in 2008, which I think is great. <laughs> so, anything else you want to talk about with this movie? I just want to mention one other thing. Uh, one other way in which the a couple things. Uh, one other way in which the film is based on actual uh, events is in 1992 at um, Memorial High School in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. A pregnant five-month uh, pregnant uh, five-month pregnant student was elected homecoming queen, but the staff um, burned the ballots and announced a different winner, and that and that that helped that helped to inspire Peroder writing the novel. Um, the other thing I want to say is uh, 1999 was a year of uh, the top-grossing film was Sixth Sense. Uh, right below that was uh, The Matrix, but another film that was in the top ten was American Beauty which is a very different film about a predatory middle-aged man and a high school student. And by a really weird coincidence, Thora Birch in American Beauty was originally going to be cast in election. Uh, and she and Alexander Payne could not see eye to eye on the character. Uh, and that's how he ended up with the actress that ended up playing uh, Tammy Metzler. The, the other thing I want to point out is that the film was very well reviewed and did very poorly at the box office. It was pretty much near the bottom and just a couple slots below uh, being that John Malkovich, which is our other 99 film. But what I think is interesting is the film was released on May 7th, 1999. You know what happened on April 20th, 1999? Columbine. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not sure people wanted to go see a film set in a high school after Columbine. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but I think the other thing is um, nobody knew how to market. They didn't know how to market the film. Um, in fact, in fact, when Proto's novel sat in a drawer for six years, uh, because he wrote it and showed it to his agent, and she said, "I don't know what this is. It's not a young adult. It's not a young adult. It's too much sex." So, it, it, so I think the film has that kind of. Um, it's got that genre issue in a sense. Um, that's actually uh, raises a question. You know, uh, Alexander Payne obviously went on to make a, a lot other a lot of other movies um, that were very successful. Um, what does it do to a filmmaker to make a movie that has critical critical success but is a failure at the box office, but then goes on to have this 
second life, this third life. Cause I mean, this is a, I'm sure this movie, when you look at all the other ways, this movie has made back its budget oh, yeah. many times over. It's, this is a, a very, uh, you know, a very popular movie. It just wasn't popular at the box office. Um, what impact does that tend to have on, on directors or filmmakers? Well, I, I, I think, I think it depends a lot on um, how, how easy they are, how, how easy they are seen to work with. In other words, you know, one of the things I think helped with Pain was the film tested really badly, uh, and part of it was the ending. And Pain reshot the ending, um, and came and came up with a different ending. And, and the studio really appreciated that. So I think part of it is: are you seen as a as a filmmaker who's difficult to work with, or are you seen as one who's kind of flexible? I think that helps with Pain. Uh, and then, yeah, and then the fact that you know when you have a good kind of after after effect um, of the film. I think that helps helps you as well. But yeah, there are filmmakers who have careers based on, you know, good reviews, but poor box office. And somehow if you can find people to pay for your films to keep making them. So. Uh, what do you have for us next? Well, I was going to do our my third film in our gender identity series, Sam, but I'm afraid that current events have, uh, have, have hijacked that. With the uh, death this past week of Sir Sean Connery, um, I think we must visit a Sean, Sean Connery film. Uh, and so I think we're going to watch uh, The Man Who Would Be King, which uh, reunites us with John Huston. And it's kind of a sense, in a sense, it's sort of another version of Treasure of Sierra Madre. So, uh, and I haven't seen Man Who Would Be King for, met for many years. And so I'm looking forward to going back to it. Uh, Sean I, Michael Caine and Christopher Plummer in 1985. Here's what I'm excited about. Not only have I not seen this movie, I've heard the title. It could be about anything that I, I have no idea what this is about. I have no sense at all. So like the, I'm, I'm very excited. You could tell me this is a King Arthur movie and I'd be like, okay, great. You could tell me this is a political movie. Great. You could tell me this is a race car movie. I great. I have no idea what this is about, which is perfect. And I will tell you that it's based on a Richard Kipling short story of the same name. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm going to reread the story and talk a little bit, a little bit about the film as an adaptation. Fantastic. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending Election. This was a fun movie to watch uh, this week in particular, um, and uh, and I hope uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed uh, you enjoyed this. Uh, as always, you can get a hold of us uh, at um, by emailing us at channel thirty nine hundred at gmail dot com. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will be back next week to watch uh, to talk about the man who would be king in the video store. Bye.